Welcome to the podcast of Calvary Baptist Church. We are delighted you have chosen to listen in today. It's our hope the message of Jesus will continue to spread and bear fruit, both in your life and the world around us. For more digital content, feel free to check us out on the web at calvarybcmoultrie.com. And now for today's message. Good morning. As some of you know, uh, we have a group of people down in Honduras today, uh, and two of those people are our elders here, Pastor Josh and Pastor David. So this morning, we are excited to have Pastor Jason Glass with us from Covenant Baptist in Valdosta. Uh, Jason is a devoted husband and a father of five children. He's an executive VP and director of capital markets for Ameris Bank in Atlanta, as well as an elder and frequent preacher at Covenant. He is also the board chairman for Reaching and Teaching International Ministries in Louisville, Kentucky. Jason has served as an elder at Covenant since 2015. Jason, we welcome you now as you come to preach us the word of the Lord. Okay, so I hear echo. Well, thank you, and... uh... I appreciate Josh's uh, invitation for me to be back with you. Um, listen, I know how Josh feels about the pulpit. And the fact that I got a second invitation, I was excited and even more nervous. So anyway, I, uh, but, I, but I'm glad to, to be here and thankful to hear that they're in Honduras. I think, was he in Honduras last time I was here? I'm trying to remember. I think he was. So anyway, this... Uh, so anyway, what a, what a, what a treat. So it's good to be with you all and I appreciate the, uh, um, the songs this morning and how they indeed have prepared our hearts for worship this morning. And, uh, I'm actually going to be in, we're going to be in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation this morning. And no, I'm not going to start talking about Apache helicopters being locusts or any of those kinds of things, uh, that maybe, uh, we might uh, find from other places, but instead we're just going to, uh, just take one of the letters that was written here, the, particularly the letter to the church at Ephesus in chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. I actually had planned to preach something entirely different. But I was just, some things happened this week that just led me uh, to this text. In particular, um, we sent down, one of the one of the ministries that I serve with as well too is a ministry called the Institute of Public Theology. It's a ministry of founders. Some of you may know Founders Ministry. It's in Cape Coral, Fort Myers, Florida. Tom Askell, the pastor of Grace Baptist Church, a dear friend of mine, love him to death. Uh, of course, they were right in the hardest, hit, one of the hardest hit areas of Hurricane Ian. So we sent, uh, so we, so the uh, week before last, we just started asking the church, you know, just just get as much stuff as we can get together as we can, from canned goods to Sanita- you know, uh, cleaning items, household goods, whatever that it, it may be needed. And so we took a 16-foot trailer load of stuff down last week and loaded up a lot of tools. And um, and uh, I did take my generator, yes, for to run some tools if needed, but more importantly to run my Keurig because I need my coffee in the morning. And so... Uh, ...load of stuff and... Um, and we're helping out areas in particular that were really hard hit by the storm surge and seeing going in, we were trying to cover roofs and trying to help just put tarps over roofs to stop leaking because obviously, you know, afternoon thunderstorms would still get hit down there. And, uh, and then of course we were inside people's homes tearing out, tearing out drywall and stuff because of the fears of mold and things getting in the house. And so we were having to cut things three and four and five feet up and stuff and seeing homes where water was, you know, five and six feet high in a home, uh, was incredible. Uh, uh, raking out mud that was three inches deep out of people's kitchen floors, things like that from storm surge. But what was probably the most amazing thing to me and something that maybe I didn't expect was how grateful people were. Now, that's, it may say, well, yeah, that seems like common sense. But I don't think you understand what I mean when I say that people were grateful. And what I mean by this is, like, if you know anything about South Florida, look, I grew up close to West Palm Beach, right? And if you know anything about South Florida, you know that everyone that lives in South Florida, no one's from there, okay? You know? 
um, I, I met a guy not long ago who said uh, it was from New York. And I said, yeah, I grew up in a suburb of New York. He goes, really? He said, where? I said, West Palm Beach. He goes, oh, yeah. Yeah, you know, yeah. It's, it's where, you know. So, I mean, I, I, know, I know New Yorkers, right? So all my, all my neighbors are from Connecticut and Jersey and New York and Boston, right? So, you know, so, yeah. So I start to, uh, my, my wife tells me, you know, if I start getting, if I start uh, getting irritated, I start talking like a New Yorker, you know, it starts to come out, right? But what's interesting is, you know, when you, when you think about that, and you know, we, we are used to South Georgia, we're used to this kind of environment, maybe, where we're used to churches all over the place and gospel influence surrounding us, and we're used to, in many ways, gospel morality impacting behavior of those around us as well. And yet, when you go to other areas of the country, whether it's the Northwest or the Northeast, maybe with a lack of evangelical Christian influence, one of the things that we forget is that there are a lot of people in our country who do not experience the love of Christ. They don't, they, they, they're not used to that. And I was staggered. What blew my mind was people that, in one particular guy named Neil, Neil and Lisa, who he came over to a house that we were working in and he said, he said, hey, how much did you have to pay these guys? He's talking to the guy's house that we were working on. He says, hey, how much did you pay these guys to come and help clean up these limbs and do all this stuff? He said, we didn't pay them at all. He said, they're from a church and they're just helping us out. He's like, what? He's like, who does that? <laughs> He's like, oh, yeah, these people, you know, these, these, uh, these, these people do it. So, we finished up a job and walked across the street. And I said, Neil, you need some help with your stuff? He goes, are you serious? I said, yeah, we'll help you out, man. What do you need? He said, I'm trying to get everything out of my garage. It's all, you know, and the house is just a mess and stuff. And But it was like encounter after encounter after encounter of people who were blown away by the idea that someone with no benefit to themselves would offer up time and energy and tools and resources just to help them out for someone that we didn't even know. And to us, we say, well, yeah, I mean, we're used to, you know, Christians running in and disaster areas and helping out and being a part of things like that. And I agree. I mean, that, that seems natural to us who have grown up, particularly around a church environment. But then to all of a sudden encounter people who for the first time in their life have ever experienced Christians doing things like this and they have, and they, and their, and their, their mind is boggled over the fact that you're just doing this just because you just want to do it? What? Doesn't make sense to them. But boy, watching the attitudes of gratefulness through that was incredible. I've never had in a single day more gospel witnessing opportunities than I had that day in my life. We shared the gospel all day long. I'm talking about, listen, it is possible to run a chainsaw and yell Jesus over the sound of it. We were talking and we were working. Tearing out drywall, doing whatever it took. I mean, but man, while tools were slinging and things were loud, man, we were... Man, we were talking gospel the whole time. We stopped in a restaurant, and there was a waiter there. And he uh, he said, so where are you guys from? And I said, well, actually, I said, we're, we're from a church in South Georgia, and we're on our way down to Fort Myers. And this was in Bradenton, which is just south of Tampa. And he said, what are you doing down there? I said, well, we're going to go down to help some folks. He goes, for what reason? And this is how the, this is how the entire trip was. He said, well, for what reason? I said, because people need help. He said, well, why would you help them? I said, because they're made in God's image. And everyone that's made in God's image, I mean, you know, they're valuable. And because they're valuable, we desire to go down and help them. Because, you know, and, and, and he, I mean, even our waiter was blown away. The guy cut our bill in half. Yay. But hey, we made, yeah, we were glad for that, but we made up for it by we tipped him what the difference was. And you know why? Because the guy came back to our table, not just to serve us, serve us our drinks, but he kept coming back because he was, he was captivated by this idea that we were driving that many miles just to go down to help people that we didn't even know. And then eventually he led, this, this led to a conversation because I said, where are you from? He goes, well, I'm actually from, he says, I'm, I'm originally from, uh, from Lakeland, um, Florida, and I'm going to University of South Florida in Tampa in school. And so we got to talking or whatever and come to find out he's just, the guy just opened up. Just because we're making conversation, just because we're talking with this guy, showing an interest in him, just making conversation. This guy opens up and how he got into various cultisms and with animistic, uh, animism religions and, you know, and, and other things. And, and, and the guy, as young as he is, was already divorced. He had wrecked his life in many ways through drugs, all kinds of things. And on top of that, and I said, you know what? I said, 
I don't know you either, but you're also made in God's image. And I care about you just like I care about strangers that we're going to go help tomorrow. And here's the truth, man. The only way that you're going to fix the wrecking ball that you've made in your life is by turning it over to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's like, what do you mean? How do you do that? And then, and then it's funny, one of the guys sitting across from me, he said, well, do you own a Bible? And he goes, I think so. So then we have, you know, then we're like, you know, thank God for smartphones sometimes. Actually, I hate them most of the time, okay? But then, you know, it was so great because I'm looking like, here's like four or five different online Bible options. Blah, blah, blah. You know, we're giving them reading assignments, you know? And the guy's literally taking the back of the receipt and he's writing down the reading assignments. Because he wants to go home and he wants to read the Bible. And what, you know what, you know what amazed me? Was how easy it was to have gospel conversation with people. And a lot of it was just because we were just doing something that was selfless. And they were stacked, they just, they didn't understand that. And I got to thinking about that the whole time, you know, I'm thinking, why is this such a big deal for people? But, you know, in, in our world, I mean, when you think about, in our, in our society, we've had three and four generations of sexual revolution that has done nothing but bring us divorce, broken homes, isolated and lonely senior adults, and people that have been rupturedly, been ruptured and dislocated from ever since, every sense of meaning and identity that is commonly found in faith and family in our culture. And they've gotten to a point to where they're not used to interacting with people who ultimately aren't out just to get something for themselves. Or their relationship to a person is tied to, I'm in it so long as you're useful to me. That's where we are in our society. And when someone stops for a moment and actually exhibits a little bit of genuine interest and care, you would be shocked at how open and transparent people will become. Because they're not used to it. And by the way, this past week in that trip was not the first time that I've encountered this. My family, they're all here. My family, wave your hand. I'm Jason Glass. We call ourselves the Glass Pack, all right? Some of you are old enough to know glass pack mufflers. That's where I got it from. Not that we're that loud, but we probably are. Uh, but glass pack just has a nice ring to it. But my family can attest to you exactly what I'm talking about. Because on multiple and other occasions, it has just been simple conversations. Just, so how are you doing? Where are you from? Just simple conversation that has led right down to the pathway of just talking about gospel. Because I think people in our society have just gotten used to others not caring about them. Unless there's some ulterior motive or some kind of benefit ultimately to themselves. And so it taught me a lot. And, and so as a result of that, I just started reflecting on, on Revelation 2, 1 through 7, particularly this message of the church, of, uh, church at Ephesus. And most of us are familiar with the letters to the seven churches. You know, most people find the you know, Revelation itself so confusing that they're scared to go past chapter 3, right? And unfortunately, we can thank greedy book publishers for that, right? Because everybody, you know, it's easy to uh, sell books that make, uh, you know, that make uh, Revelation look like sci-fi. As opposed to recognizing that it is a letter that is written and is meant to be read and read often by the local church. Because it is dealing with a church that is battered by persecution, living under the reign of Domitian, who is also, you know, who is a tyrant, uh, a Roman emperor tyrant. Uh, and also where there is severe economic oppression that's going on, there's significant religious uh, persecution going on. By the way, this letter being written by John himself, having been exiled to Patmos, which means, say, well, what does that mean? He just got a, he got a vacation on an island in the Aegean Sea? No. It means that by being exiled by Domitian, he was instead stripped of his citizenship and stripped of every piece of property that he owns. Which is why John says in chapter 1, verse 9, I, your brother John, your fellow sharer or partaker in the tribulation. They're experiencing persecution and this book, this letter that was circulated among this region of Asia Minor was meant to inform this church that the greatest kingdoms known to men will be conquered by the kingdom of our Christ. And to help the church to persevere, press on, hang on with endurance, and fight to the bitter end in the fight of faith, as Paul talks about in First, in first Timothy this is meant to be an encouraging work. I, I honestly do think it's the work of the devil 
where people make the book of Revelation a confusing book because the avoidance of the book is exactly the thing that we were commanded not to do. Think about uh, in Revelation 1-3, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things that are written in it, for the time is near. And then that is the beginning of the book. And then the very end, in chapter 22, verse 7, Jesus says, Behold, I'm coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. The book begins and ends with a, you know, with a, a blessing, a benediction of the, those who are blessed who actually will read the contents of this book. But yet we've allowed so many people to create such confusion that we just think it's like some, it's so mysterious and so, so hard to understand that instead we, we miss the very blessing that it's meant to be to the church. It's a letter. At the end of the day, the book of Revelation is a letter. It is written to seven churches. It is actually, and, and just like every other letter, it has a beginning. It opens with a prologue in chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. It has a conclusion, just like every other letter. It has a benediction. It has a greeting. It has an author. It is a long epistle that is 22 chapters. And that's what it's meant to be. And... You have overall in this letter, you have these seven churches that are addressed here, five of which are unhealthy and two of which are somewhat healthy, but they're kind of, you know, they're, they're kind of buried among all the other unhealthy stuff, right? It's kind of like the good kids kind of get overshadowed by the bad kids in the class. You remember, you, got, you remember those? Yeah. So the wrong attention here, right? But these five unhealthy congregations are facing problems. When you read through these letters, they're, they're facing problems of, well, we'll read about harsh orthodoxy, idolatrous influences, sexual immorality, false teaching, and even complacency on some of these, like you saw with Laodicea. And, you know, and it's interesting when you go through that list, you, you quickly realize, well, this, these churches don't face problems all that dissimilar from what we face today too, right? So... Obviously, these things hold their relevancy. But you know, another thing that's easy to maybe miss and something that we forget too is that by the time that these letters are written, all letters of these churches here, but take for example the one that we're going to look at in the church at Ephesus here in chapter 2. You got to think about this so that these churches have been around now for some 40, 50 years. You know, I mean, these churches, by the time they were planted, I mean, we're talking after, you know, 35, 40 years later, roughly, it's just supposed to be more conservative here. 35, 40 years later, I mean, we're into second and third generation believers here by the time that these letters are written. This is not the same group of people that Paul ministered to when he gave his farewell address to the Ephesian elders in, in Acts chapter 20. Timothy has already... We, we don't, I mean, Timothy is probably no longer the pastor. Timothy may not even be alive for all we know. But this is the same church, for example, in Ephesus that Timothy pastored, that Paul ministered to. And where have, and no doubtably, the book of Ephesians is probably one of the greatest epistles that Paul ever wrote. It's one of my favorites. And so, we have to remember that we are dealing here with Children, maybe, and grandchildren, or at least two or three generations of people that are removed from the first generations of the church plant. And they are having to be reminded that in all of this battle, just like this entire book, this entire book of Revelation, is all about helping them to understand that they're, that we live in a world in which there's always going to be counterfeits to the kingdom of God. There's always counterfeits to the work that, 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 that Christ has done, that the, that the enemy, the serpent of old that John describes in chapter 12, the dragon, will always offer these counterfeits. And that we do have to remain vigilant. But there's something else also that in our vigilance and in our orthodoxy and in our fight and pursuit of truth, there's something else that we also cannot forget. And that's where John takes us in the very first letter in chapter 2, verse 1. Well, let's read the text first together. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this, I know your deeds or works, your toil and your perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and you have endured for my namesake and you've not grown weary. But I have this against you, 
that you have left your first love or left that which you did love first. We can, we'll talk about that in just a moment. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. Else I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. And yet this you do have, that you hate the deed of the Nicolaitans and which I also hate. He, uh, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. In each of these letters, is, it is uh, given here, each of these letters are addressed to an angel. These angels act as representatives over the churches themselves. Yes, I wish I had more time to talk about angels. It's interesting, almost 70 times the word angel shows up in the book of Revelation. It's always meant to be a spiritual being, not in uh, in the sense of a uh, of just a person, like messenger, like sometimes that it could refer to. But in this case, you have angels here that are representing the churches and acting as spiritual messengers uh, or spiritual emissaries, spiritual ambassadors who are then taking the message from our Lord Jesus Christ and delivering it to John or in uh, delivering it on behalf of the church itself. So the king of heaven issues his message through a spiritual messenger, not just, uh, and then of course to his apostle. But notice here what Jesus does. In in this first verse here, Jesus identifies himself in two ways. One, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. And then the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. And this is a very subtle change in this vocabulary here with that has significant meaning. For example, in chapter 1, verse 16, back up with me just there and look for just, for just a moment. Jesus, John describes Jesus in his, uh, uh, in his vision of him. He describes him already as him in his right hand he held seven stars and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and his face was shining like the sun shining in its full strength. It's interesting here, John's already described Jesus as the one who is holding the seven stars in his right hand. Now he describes him again in chapter 2 verse 1 as the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. The, the key here is this, the word hold and held there is two different words that, don't, that do not mean the same thing. The first one in chapter 1 verse 16 is just a general word for the word held, like someone holding something or possessing something or, or, or just, you know, in the, in the normal way that we would use it in our English language as well. But what's interesting is in chapter 2 verse 1, the word here is also, is more meant to, as someone who takes hold of something in the sense of seizing it, grasping it, or has power over it, has sovereign control over it. So in this sense, it's a it's a, a much different word. It's a word that's used in the Greek here to describe that where something has been seized or when someone has been arrested or controlled. That's the sense of held that is being done that, that is intended here in chapter two, verse one. Very different. Jesus not only has these stars, but he has sovereign possession and control over them. It's a very big difference. And so why is that such a big deal? Well, because in the ancient world of the Roman Empire, the, the Roman emperors always thought of themselves as divine. And if you ever pulled up even some ancient coins, uh, you could dig up, you could, you can go online, you can look at some ancient coins of some of the emperors, and you always find on the back of the coin, you always find seven stars. And the reason why there were seven stars there is because it was the completion of the cosmos to which the Caesars, who viewed themselves as demigods, as being as being God incarnates on earth, they also would, would uh, announce for themselves as ones also who ruled over the stars. And yet Jesus comes in like a wrecking ball and announces to this church, I am the one who has control over the seven stars. Caesar has no power here. So Jesus not only rules the seven stars, but then you notice there he also walks among the seven lampstands. What a gracious and a terrifying concept. You hear that? That Jesus walks among the lampstands. They've already been identified in chapter 1 verse 20 that the lampstands, the seven lampstands are the churches. 
that Jesus walks among the lampstands, which is both comforting and terrifying. You know why? Because this Jesus, who has sovereign control and who possesses authority, is also close enough to be among his churches. But what that also means, that if he's close enough to be among the churches, he's close enough to also see and inspect the churches as well. Christ's presence can be both comforting, but in our sin, it can also be a threat. And something to keep in mind. So this verse teaches us we should always be comforted and challenged by the presence of the Lord Jesus because his Holy Spirit is always near, both comforting and convicting us. So. So then we get to the praise. There was actually some good things going on with the church. And that you'll see in verses 2 and 3. And then you'll see also another commendation, another praise that it occurs in verse 6. Notice verses 2 and 3. So here comes the praising here. I know your deeds and your toil or your labor and your perseverance or your endurance. Some of your translations may read something different there. And that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not. And you found them to be false. And you and you have perseverance and have endured for my namesake and you've not grown weary. Man, there's the praise. What an awesome report. Wouldn't you like to have that kind of report given about Calvary Baptist? Absolutely. Also, again, in verse 6. Yet this you, uh, you, you do have that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans just like I also hate, or which I also hate. So you have two, so you have three verses here that speak in a, a way of commendation, praising them, giving a good report of what these, of what this church is actually doing right. So Jesus praises them and he, and he praises them first and foremost for their passion for orthodoxy. What a great thing, especially even in our day. Churches do well. I loved hearing the prayer and reading what we're talking about, you know, with the, the emphasis on Scripture. Why? Because Calvary Baptist, your pastor, and just like our church and our pastor, all of us, we all have a passion for orthodoxy. We want to know the truth because we know that God reveals himself and speaks to us through the truth of his word. There's a passion for truthfulness. What Jude talks about, contending, fighting for the faith that was once handed down to the saints. That's what we want. And this church is commended for that. They're passionate about God's word. And you notice in chapter 2, verse 2 there, notice how the word works or deeds is plural. It's plural because the singular words of endurance or perseverance or laboring, these explain what that what those deeds are. The deed that they were doing was endurance and perseverance. And so in this, you'll notice that the church's commitment here, the church's commitment is to orthodoxy, and it's, but also the church's commitment to virtue. Christian moral integrity was so important to this church that they cannot... John says, or Jesus speaking through John says, they cannot even bear evil men or bear evil. They have such a, not just a commitment to orthodoxy, but they also have what we would call a commitment to orthopraxy. Not just right doctrine, but right living. And as a result of that, they can't bear, he says, in chapter 2, verse 3, they cannot even bear, uh, those are, uh, Excuse me, verse 2 there. It cannot even bear those that are evil men. The truth of Christianity compels the character of being Christian. And often, those who are evil, and some of us probably have had experiences here, just like I have, those who are evil or have evil motivations, oftentimes, you can know them by their character that is rotten. Because they tend to be people who are prideful, often people that are causing and sowing seeds of division, people that are causing dissension within the church, people that are all about themselves. These kinds of things begin to happen. And so the church here is experiencing something to where they are experiencing commendation, praising from the Lord, because not only do they hate heterodoxy, not only do they hate falsehood, but they also, they hate evil, they hate evil works, evil deeds themselves. Because they know what a disaster it is for a local church. On top of that, Jesus also says they challenge those who call themselves apostles. And we have to keep in mind that the word apostles is more expansive than just meaning the 12 or the apostle Paul. 
Because even Epaphroditus in Philippians chapter 2 was referred to as an apostle. Barnabas, who accompanied Paul, was referred to as an apostle. Sometimes the apostles were those who were authoritatively set out and sent by the church. And they were authorized in that way. And so you have these people, I mean, my goodness, it happened during Paul's lifetime. People that were forging Paul's letters, sending letters in, writing things that, 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 you know, and, and promoting different doctrines and different teachings. People that were traveling in. You know, it's not like that the, it's not like the church could go, well, let me check out their uh, social media account and see exactly, you know, what they're actually putting out online out there, right? So you don't know. This is the reason why sometimes Paul had to end his letters by going, I'm writing this in my own handwriting, right? To make sure that you know that this letter actually bears authenticity because there were imposters running around everywhere. And so Paul, excuse me, Jesus, is commending them that even they test those who call themselves apostles. The elders of the church some 35 years ago before this, they received a warning from the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 20. You know what Paul told them? In his, this is the, the last time he ever saw the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20. This is one of the things that Paul said to them. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves... You hear that? From among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. That was written, Paul spoke those words some 35 years before this, before these verses were penned. The church elders listened and they trained the church and the church was vigilant, man. They were testing for orthodoxy, testing apostles, testing doctrine. Man, they were all about the business. And then we get to this other commendation in chapter 2, verse 6 about the, the Nicolaitans. Who are these people? I mean, they're another group of antagonists that were named. I mean, to be honest, we're not entirely sure. We have little hints here and there from church history about maybe who they might be. And I don't have time to really talk about all of those things. But I'm not entirely sure who they are. But what we do know is that they fit inside that category of chapter 2, verse 2 of being wicked people that was described. But it seems that they were not only, they're, they're part of that wicked people group the, of the false apostles and the Nicolaitans were just a different group of wicked people sort of in that, in that category. But what we can kind of piece together when you look at like chapter 2 verse 15 and stuff, because they're mentioned again there too. What we can kind of piece together with them uh, in the message to Pergamum is that somehow they were connected to bad behavior that led to idolatry and sexual immorality. And you see that kind of from chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Somehow, they were corrupt enough in their teaching that it also the, Nicol- the Nicolaitans were also uh, influential in leading people to supposedly be worshiping Jesus, but were also guilty of sexual immorality. And so we kind of see that with the references there to Balaam, as well as to Jezebel later on. It's always a threat to the church, right? That the people, and you have to think about this, right? When you're two and three generations removed, but also when the church is experiencing persecution like the churches were. I mean, you have to keep in mind, these, these churches were experiencing real persecution. They were experiencing real job loss, losing property, losing homes, family members not wanting to talk to them anymore, people that were being exiled, loved ones even being killed, people that were being put into prison. There was real persecution going on here for the love of Jesus. And you know what? There's a real temptation when all that happens to maybe find an alternative path that's a little bit easier, but maybe hopefully God can still be satisfied with. Because in our flesh, we always kind of want to round off the sharp corners of God's truth. But in hoping in some way that God still be satisfied with it. But it's interesting here because Jesus commends the church for hating the works and deeds and practices of the Nicolaitans, which he also hates. Did you notice that language? It's strong language. The, the, the word literally, I mean, it's Jesus hates. There's intensity in his hatred towards the works and the deeds and practices that they do. The language is firm and it can even come across and seem harsh. But notice that Jesus is not commending them for hating the Nicolaitans. He's commending them for hating the deeds. 
Maybe we can call this, you know, the classic sort of, you know, hate the sin, not the sinner kind of frame, right? That's what we have here. So it's a very careful distinction that is made in this text and a careful distinction that we have to make. Nowhere is Jesus ever commending us to ever hate the actual person. But the wicked practices of the person is a different story. Unfortunately, it can be sometimes very hard for us to maintain that proper tension and balance. Because, I'm, I'm, look, let's just be honest with you. We live in one of the hottest political climates in our nation's history. Everything's political. Everything's divisive. Everything is a big deal. And it can be very, very difficult, even for the church, to not make people, even in politics, become your enemies and lose compassion for their soul in the process. And that is what brings us to chapter 2, verse 4. Because this is where the text changes to where we go from from commendation to praising to where now Jesus has what I call the grievance. Here's the grievance that he has with the church. The grievance is marked by a typical phrase, but I have this against you. It's a phrase you'll you'll, you'll see later again in Pergamon and Thyatira and elsewhere. And some of the translations are going to differ here. but in, So I'll read, for example, the New American Standard will say, But I have this against you that you've left your first love. The CSB, the Christian Standard Bible, will have, uh, you have abandoned the love you had at first. The ESV does something very similar there. The King James does what the New American Standard does. I have this against thee because thou hast left thy first love. So most of the translations will understand the reference, you know, well, I guess the question becomes, when we talk about leaving first love, is first here in reference to time or is first in reference to degree? First being the sense of priority, degree, or time in the sense of relative to, you know, is it temporal in that way? How do we understand first here? And you'll notice that some translations differ on that because some translators may have a different view about exactly how the language is being used here in the Greek. And that's okay. doesn't mean it's beyond finding out. The irony is, and before I answer that question, the irony is this. That when I mentioned to you about the letter to Ephesians, uh, the, the, the letter to the church at Ephesus, the book of Ephesians that, most, uh, that many of us love. There's no epistle in all of the written by the Apostle Paul that has the word love in it more than the epistle to the Ephesians. In fact, the word love shows up some 20 times in the book of Ephesians. I find it very, it's quite the irony that the very thing that is, that Jesus files a grievance with the church against is the very thing that was most taught about in the whole book that Paul wrote. And you have things, you know, like, like, let me just read some of the, the, you know, you talk about, Paul talks in Ephesians about the love of God, right? In chapter 2, verse 4. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love, which he loved us, right? Uh, you know, rescued us and redeemed us from the deadness of our transgression, our transgressions. But it also, much of the usage of love speaks to its practical outworkings within the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. That the love itself is something that is not just not just God's love to us through the cross and through redempt through the redemptive work of God, but then Paul spends much of the letter and much of the use of love describing love and its actual practical usage in the local church. So you have, for example, here in in in, in chapter four, verse fifteen of Ephesians, Paul says, "Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up into all aspects of Christ." Who is our head, right? Paul also talks about being kind to one another, forgiving one another, right? Just as God is also in Christ has also forgiven you. And be imitators of God in chapter 5 verse 1 as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ has loved you and gave himself up for us as an offering and sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. And then, of course, the passages on marriage about husbands loving wives. I mean, love is permeated in all throughout the book of Ephesians. And so while some of, some of people have taken 
the Ephesian church, the, the, the church at Ephesus is losing, losing their first love as having lost priority of loving God first. Probably the more, the, the way that this is actually uh, being addressed is more about lo- losing their love and their relationship with one another. That's how even most commentators would take that verse as well too. That it's a loss of love towards one another inside the church. And listen, we understand that, that loving one another is a major proof of, of discipleship. Jesus says in John 13, 34 and 35, you know, a new commandment I give you that you love one another as what? I have loved you. And then he makes this statement. You ready? By all, by this, all will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The way in which you love one another will prove to the world you belong to me. You hear that? It's not just our love for God's truth. It's not just our love for orthodoxy. It's our love for God's people. It's our love for one another inside the church. So how can this happen? How do we move from, how do we move from a church and talking about love? How do they get to where They've lost the kind of love, the fervency of love for one another that they once had before. How did we get to that point? Well, you know, it's not that hard to imagine how we could get there. Because in some sense, the passion for orthodoxy in our passion and our love for truth, we can actually lose our commitment to love. I don't know why this is, but it just seems like sometimes conservative people. People who genuinely know that they're right tend to also be the most arrogant people out there. Have you ever seen, have you ever noticed that? Sometimes when you know that you're right about something, you just get prideful about it. Let's just tell the truth, okay? I always joke that those on the left have to fake humility because they know they're always wrong. Alright? So. But, but in some sense, you know, you, you have a church here, like you take the church at Ephesus, Ephesus here, and the church has been battered with false teachers, false apostles, false this, false that. They're, they are fighting a war, a warfare for truth constantly. And over time, you know what happened? It's almost like a harshness kind of developed. You know, there was like a, there was a fight for orthodoxy here, or in, in some sense, there was like mistrust developed in the congregation and in some and and in some sense it was almost like a harshness that kind of developed where you know they were so passionate for the truth they kind of lost the love for one another along the way this can happen some have referred to it as the frozen chosen And what happens when this, what, what tends to happen is that this, this is also, there's a harshness that can develop and also, um, hurt feelings and fragmentation in the local church can develop too, you know, because there, there becomes like impatience towards one another, a lack of grace towards one another, and sometimes a sternness in our tone and an offense in the way we talk and act and things that we do. That those kind of things can develop. And as a result of that, you know, you end up having a, a church that has abandoned forsaken a love that they once had before for one another. Jesus warned about this in the Olivet Discourse. Remember that? That's when Jesus, you know, the disciples asked the question, hey, so when's the end times coming? And Jesus says, well, let me tell you about it. And in Matthew 24, he actually said this as well too. Jesus said, hey, many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. And because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. You see, the increase of lawlessness, the increase of anti-law, the increase of things that are contrary to the word of God, what can happen is it can put us in a defensive posture. And in our defensiveness, it can also create pride. And pride can create some harshness. It can kind of create some sternness that can all of a sudden we lose the affection of love that also Christ calls us to hold very dear. Listen, life is always about a balance. Life is always about holding things in their proper tension. Not going too far this way, too far this way. Yes, be passionate for orthodoxy. But be passionate also 
for the mission of God's people. And seeing the church edified, built up, loving one another. Because one of the problems about being right or being correct is that if it's left unchecked, it will tempt us towards pride. Remember when Paul had the problem of the, of the whole issue of eating food sacrificed to idols? And Paul says, listen, you may be good in your conscience about eating that food that you went to the meat market that was just sacrificed to Artemis. That may be fine, but your knowledge of that can do nothing but exalt you and puff you up. If it's if you first of all don't sacrifice your liberty in order to make sure the conscience of your brother is not offended. That's real love. And this is what can happen. Sometimes if we're if we're not careful, our passion for something can lead to pettiness. Lead to divisions. You know, maybe maybe one maybe one wife is convinced that the only way to honor God is to Grind your own wheat and make bread. I don't know. And another one is like, give me the white stuff on the shelves at the Dollar General. I don't care. All right? I mean, who cares? I am not going, you know, my eternal destiny is not dependent on whether or not my wife grounded her wheat or I bought wheat or she bought some cheap flour bread from a DG. It doesn't matter. But some, but my point is sometimes, Christians can divide or develop harsh attitudes towards one another, sometimes over the most frivolous things. Listen, praise the Lord for his faithful churches and praise God for faithful pastors like your pastor Josh. And praise God for commitments to orthodoxy. But we always must remember that it is about that it is about God's truth and God's people being edified and protected. It is not about us. Imagine that. It's not about us. Hard to believe in our age that we're not the center of attention. Because that's what we're always spoon fed, right? It is possible to be right in your doctrine, right in all your knowledge, and have outstanding theology, and yet also still be disobedient, rebellious, and sinful in your attitude towards other people. You hear what I just said? You can be right in all of the doctrine, and you can be dead wrong in your attitude. Right doctrine does not guarantee right practice. Right doctrine leads us to right practice. Our heart attitude must always be checked, and we must make sure our knowledge is not puffing ourselves up, but we are being expent for the benefit of other people. It's important. It, Listen, this is, and I'll quickly, because I'm, I'm running out of time, but I'll say this. This is, this is what led me, and I just thought, thinking about this all this week in my experiences down in South Florida. These people were amazed that there was love, love being displayed for strangers. And I didn't tell you the rest of the story about our waiter. He admitted that he was a homosexual, and he also was a man who was dressed like a woman. I mean, he came over with nails all done and earrings like a, like a, like a woman and he was identifying as a trans and all this other stuff. Now, let me just ask you a question. Listen, I think that stuff's gross. I get it. There's a, there's a yuck factor that's attached to it. I get it. But you know, at some point too, we have to understand something. When you have generations that have grown up, do you remember the reaction I told you about when people, when people down in South Florida, when they showed up and they just could not believe that Christians were down there just serving people for no other reason, just the fact, just, just to serve them? They couldn't believe it. You know why? Because there once was a day when Christians doing that was not surprising. It's what just people expected in our society. But our culture has so drifted away from a biblical memory and biblical truth that there are generations. You ready for what I have to say here? generations of people who've never seen Christianity in action. And the only thing that they know about the word Christian is that it's political, they're judgmental, they're harsh, and they hate me. His first words to me, he go, and I said, you got, I said, have you ever been to a church? He looked at me, he said, there's no church. I'd ever want me inside of it. I said, how do you know that? How do you know that? He said, well, and, and he went on just talking about, he said, well, I mean, I just know how people in churches are. 
But you know, but all of a sudden he's like, he said, I've never met a Christian. This is actually what he said. He said, I never met a Christian like you guys. There was five of us sitting there. I've never met a Christian like you guys. Because the guys identified as a homosexual, divorced, a trans, all those things. And at the same time, we're sitting there loving him and giving him the gospel because despite all of that yuckiness of all of that sin, he is a fellow image bearer of the divine. And he deserves to know the truth. And yeah, we may be on opposite ends of the political spectrum, opposite ends of uh, uh, the spectrums of everything, every philosophy and everything in life. But at the end of the day, he needed to see love of Christ. And that way it opened the opportunity to hear the message of Christ. We have to be careful that in our zeal for doctrine, in our zeal for rightness, that we don't lose the affection of love for fellow human beings, and especially those within the church. Listen, as our society is just destroying people's lives, we have senior adults who are plagued with loneliness because they have family that won't keep in touch with them. We have people that have lost family members, people that are growing up in broken homes, step this and step that and step this relationships, all those things all over the place, and they can't find meaning. They can't find a sense of value on social media, friend groups, or at work, or anywhere else, but yet if we can have a sense of love towards one another in the church, you will find people who will get a sense of belonging in the local church they could never find outside the doors or never outside of this of this local church and this is not a problem out there this is a problem even in moultrie georgia in moultrie georgia there is an opioid crisis in in, in, in moultrie georgia there is fentanyl there is a drug abuse there is alcoholism there is all kinds of things going around you know why because as francis schaefer said years ago that when people lose the ability to explain reality they look for a reason to escape reality and that's the reason why pornography drugs alcohol everything around you is taking off even in small town usa because people have lost the sense of the knowledge of the gospel and they're looking for anything to deaden the numbness of living in the harshness of life that's when we come in with the gospel that offers life and meaning and purpose and identity what's the solution for the church verse 5 therefore three things ready remember where have you fallen? Number two, repent. Number three, do the deed you did at first. Don't you love that? Jesus is straight to the point. Remember, repent, and do. <laughs> there you go. That's your solution right there. Remembering is a powerful agent for moral change, is it not? It woke up the prodigal son in Luke 15. He's like, you know, my dad was a little better than me than living in this pig slop. And he woke to his senses, didn't he? They needed to repent. They needed to make a deliberate and concerted effort towards change. But I want to get to this real quick and we'll close here. The consequences. The consequences here, the last part of verse 5 and in verse 7. What's the consequence that this change is not made? Well, Jesus issues to the church here that if they do not remember, if they do not do the deeds of repentance, he gives here both a negative consequence, which is judgment, and then he gives a positive consequence, which we will frame as the reward. The judgment one here occurs in the last half of verse 5. Repent and do the deeds that you did at first, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. The threat of judgment here, Jesus removing the lampstand, there are questions that people have had about this. Some people think it's just the witness of the church. Some people think, well, the church is going to lose its evangelism, or it's going to lose its influence of being an evangelistic, you know, uh, a staple in the community. That's the, the problem with that is that this comes from understanding the lampstand from the tabernacle itself, and it's symbolizing the presence of God, and also the teaching from Zechariah chapter four over the over the lamp itself, which signified God Himself being the sustaining influence. He was the sustaining lamp of the community. That if the community was not tied to God himself, the community, the lamp would just extinguish. And so the point is, in all this kind of a harshness here, the threat is this. That this is not about being a loss of witness. This is about the destruction of the church. 
Removing the lampstand is about the church disappearing. It's severe judgment. It's a threat to remove, to extinguish, and destroy the church, which is a horrific consequence. And it's not surprising we've seen these kind of harshness uh, elsewhere. I mean, for example, a little bit later, G- Jesus talks about the deeds of the, uh, uh, you know, the Nicolaitans of hating them. But also he threatens to make war against the church at Pergamon later on. And then he threatens in the Thi- in church at Thyatira to strike down and kill the children of, of Jezebel. And so there's a, there's a coming here where Jesus is, he is threatening here that the church itself will cease to exist in Ephesus. If they don't repent. This is a a massive threat of judgment. Jesus says I am coming to you. I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand. And I think that we should see that. Both as a present and a future judgment. Listen. You say well what do you mean a present judgment? Well a church that loses the effectiveness of its witness. And its truth to orthodoxy and orthopraxy. A church that does that will be a church that will die. You don't believe me? Look around you. I promise you that in 10 years, half the churches in Colquitt County that are here today will not be here. All around us are churches that are struggling with, with aging congregations, people that can't pay their bills, dwindling congregations, and eventually they will just die out. And a lot of it, yes, you can blame it on our society becoming post-Christian, but you can also say it's because, in many ways, people gave up the commitments to the right things. And they lost it along the way. But what is the reward? Man, the reward here is found for us in verse 7. But he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The overcoming there. This will be an easy one for you to remember. It's the word Nike. Yeah. It's actually where they get, it's actually where they got it from, you know? There was actually, in, there was a goddess named Nike that was the goddess that granted wreaths, flew in and gave wreaths to those who were victorious in their conquest, right? But at this time, the, 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 this word is being used here to speak about the church being overcomers, the church being victorious. And when the church is victorious, they'll be able to, to actually eat of the tree of life, something that no one's been able to do ever since Adam and Eve were booted out of the Garden of Eden. Well, they were forbidden to enter back into that and guard, where it was guarded by the cherubim itself. But in this case, now, there is a reward here that Jesus will reward them to eat from the tree of life that symbolized, that symbolized eternal life. And eating from this tree means everlasting life in the presence and enjoyment of God himself. Paradise lost becomes paradise regained. Listen, the balance for us is balancing truth in love. Be passionate for orthodoxy. But be passionate for the edification of God's people too. Hate evil deeds. But don't hate the evil doers. Because if that were people's attitude towards me, I never would be in the spot I'm in right now. Thank God for Christian people who, despite my failures, love me enough to tell me the truth of Jesus. And if we don't have that kind of love towards others, we'll miss opportunities in restaurants. We'll miss opportunities in disaster areas. We'll miss opportunities at work. We'll miss opportunities at Thanksgiving and around family members and people that you don't really want to be around. We'll miss all the opportunities that God puts in our pathway all the time if our senses are not just attuned to right orthodoxy, but if we're, but our senses also being attuned to right love as well too. The gospel should benefit everyone. Starting in here, in your love towards one another, displaying the love of Christ, so that way everyone who comes in here will be overwhelmed at seeing a real community and a real family that loves one another. And then that same kind of compassion leads to the mission of you being faithful outside these doors, so that when you leave here, you will have compassion for even the one who is steeped in a sinful lifestyle. You'll have enough compassion for them to give them the love of Christ. And you know what? Be encouraged. It may shock you to hear this, but people, even in all the hostility of our culture, they will listen when you are genuine 
and your interest towards them. They will listen. And God is bringing us plenty of opportunity. The fields are white with harvest. May God make us faithful laborers and send us out. Thanks for listening in to today's message. For more information about our church, feel free to visit us at calvarybcmoultrie.com. We hope you will join us again next time. Until then, grace and peace.